Hello, everybody. Welcome to Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Gasperi. This is Frank Pelican. And tonight, uh, this is episode thirty-six. We will be doing the top five docudrama movies. Frank, we've been talking about this one. It seems like for a while too, off and on. Yeah. Uh, this is something that you wanted to do. Um, before we get into your list tonight. I wanted to start off by going through a slew of movies that aren't on your list and getting reactions from you about those. So, uh, I want to start off with the right stuff. I don't really have an opinion of the right stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're going to ask about this. I equate the right stuff with like Chariots of Fire, basically. Like, they just seem like movies my parents watched that I didn't care about. Okay. I don't, I don't know if I've seen the right stuff since like the 1980s. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Um, all the President's Men. Uh, you know, I actually thought about putting that on this list, but, um, I mean, it's a great movie. Um, and probably like pretty, I don't know, relevant in today's society, but just from a personal standpoint, like. It doesn't resonate as much with me as like the five on this list, so I don't know. But it's 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 really good movie. Okay, um, Hotel Rwanda. I've only seen Hotel Rwanda once. I, I liked it a lot. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's 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 a good movie. Okay. I don't, Serpico. I am not a fan of Serpico. I don't really okay. have. <clears throat> I don't know. Like, if what is it about Serpico? It's just kind of grimy and I don't know. It feels like a really like I don't know. It makes me uneasy for some reason. I don't know okay. why. Like, right. I just I again I don't think I've seen Serpico since like maybe the early yeah. or mid nineties. It's been a long time since I've seen Serpico. Maybe. Yeah. And I don't <clears throat> even remember it that well, but I don't have fond like it doesn't bring out <clears throat> fond feelings inside my my heart. Okay. Um Aaron Brockovich. Aaron Brockovich is fine. I don't know. It's a good performance by Julia Roberts. Maybe like her, well, one of her best performances. Do you think that sometimes with docudramas that that ends up being the case a lot where there's a really good performance in it and the movie's just fine? You know, to me with docudramas, there has to be some sort of like personal resonance in the story that's being told i guess like i actually have to care not that like i don't care about what it what is it kids with cancer right and aaron brockovich sure um but it wasn't anything that i knew about beforehand and after seeing the movie i wasn't like spurred to go and research you know whatever um I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It's, I think, I, I think when someone, and like, obviously like I've never directed a movie or whatever, but I feel like there has to be a balance between telling a compelling narrative that works as a film and being as true to the actual events as you can. Right. And like actually telling the story of what happened. And I think a lot of, I think a lot of docudramas kind of fall short in the sense that maybe they are too much in the the telling and not enough in the actual narrative. Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one of the things we're going to get into and in talking about 
these docudramas is what makes a good docudrama. And yeah. I don't think there's one clear answer to that. I think there's probably a few different answers to that. Right. But um, it's like pornography. Like I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Right. The old uh, oh, who was? I can't remember. Never mind. I won't be able to think of it. Quick Jesse enough. Helms. Nah, it wasn't Jesse Helms. Uh, um, pretend like that's him. Moro was that? Was that the report's name? I can't remember the report's name. Oh right, yeah, I think that's right. Um, <clears throat> I don't yeah. know why I said Jesse Helms. It's first politician. <laughs> it's, I it's, uh, it's from that time period. Right. Yeah, or like from the nineteen sixties or fifties yeah. or. I almost said Ed Helms. Eighteen sixties. And then I was thinking of um, Oral Roberts, but I almost said Oral Hershiser. So both mm. of those. That. <laughs> <laughs> What's the next movie? Searching for Bobby Fischer. Oh, that's a good movie. He, for some reason, like that was a weird. What, what is that like? Ninety three, mid nineties, ninety three, ninety three. I think it was. I I like that movie, but I don't really remember anything about it. Like to me, mm-hmm. it just seems kind of just there. I guess I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I saw half of it. Like five or six years ago somehow like on television or something and um i thought it was still really captivating um i think i liked it better that watching that half than i did when i was younger so it's probably something i should probably rewatch. so i was dating a girl at the time and we watched that and reality bites hmm. as like a back-to-back double feature one day yeah and so i always equate bobby fisher with reality bites yeah and um ethan hawk singing uh Added up by the Violent Femmes, and like so, that's what I think of when I think of Bobby Fisher. So maybe that's why it doesn't maybe, come to mind. Maybe so much. <laughs> Charlie Wilson's War. Oh, that's a really good movie. I like that movie a lot. That's another one where I like I. I think I saw that maybe with you. No, no, you know I saw it with a a, a friend of mine in in the theater. Yeah. Um, without knowing anything about it beforehand, like I don't remember even seeing the trailer for it, and I was pretty impressed. Yeah. I mean, that's it's, it's. I remember you really liked it at the time. Hanks and um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? Yes, yeah. are the two like principals I, yeah. in it. Um, Hanks is really good in it, and Philip uh-huh. Seymour Hoffman is really good in it. Yeah, it's another thing where like I don't. I mean, I grew up during the you know, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, so. Yeah. But I was like seven or eight, maybe. Yeah. So it's it's something where like I know about it, but I don't really. The personal connection isn't enough where, like, it was something that I thought about. This list was made purposefully because, like, these five specific movies, like, I wanted to talk about them. So, <laughs> and they kind of, I mean, they're all, like, biopics or docudramas, whatever right, you want to yeah. call it. Uh, good night and good luck. You know, so, that's, like... We saw that together. That's 5B to mm-hmm. me, and honestly, probably should replace five mm-hmm. um except that like my nostalgic affection for the fifth movie is so much stronger than my yeah. I, good, good night and good luck is a fantastic movie and it's interesting because so whatever the fifth movie is ed wood so because they're both black and white and yeah. honestly like when we talk about ed wood i want to talk about good night and good luck a little bit because uh-huh. i the way they're filmed it's just like i don't know it's a really good movie. Do you think that's Clooney's best role? I don't know, man. Okay. That's a really hard question to answer. Probably. 
I can't think of anything. I mean, what's that? Syriana, right? Isn't that Clooney? It he, is. He's he's actually really good. In he's that oh, movie. he's he's good in that movie. I don't. I do not like that movie. No, it's it's it, it's in that realm of movies of like Constant Gardener and those kind of things that like I just these international See, pin, pinpointed worse. political to thriller me, dramas yeah. that end up like being like well acted, but so substandard in terms to me the thriller aspects of them a lot of times and i found syriana difficult to watch in the same way i found traffic difficult to watch Mm. like syriana made me really it gave me a sense of like motion sickness almost like it was really tough for me to sit in the theater and watch that movie on the big screen like i almost had to leave watching it and so i don't but he's really good in it yeah uh quiz show I've seen Quiz Show once and I don't really remember it mm. for being like such a like hugely acclaimed movie at the time that it came out. You would think that I would have actually. Right. That was a time where I was watching more like indie and B horror stuff. So I watched Quiz Show because people said that you should go see Quiz Show. But Quiz Show feels to me like it would be something that thematically actually would go really well with today as opposed to the the the, the time that it came out. What is Quiz Show? Like 95? 94. It com- it, I think it was competition the same year as Pulp Fiction and Forrest Gump. Hmm. Um, so it really had no, no shot. Like it might have won best adapted screenplay because I think it was based off a book. Maybe I can't. It won something that year. I mean, I, I remember know. liking it. Yeah. I don't. I didn't see it in the theater. I rented years it. I would too. So I rented it from um, Choices, I think, in yeah. Fox Run. It was like a five for five. Yeah. So that was yeah, I didn't I was, see it in the theater. That was when I was watching like 15 to 20 movies a week. Sure. So I, Absolutely. Know. All right, last one, Dog Day Afternoon. So I understand that Dog Day Afternoon is like a docudrama, but to me it's more than that. So I don't know that, like I think it kind of transcends. I think Dog Day Afternoon becomes more about, it's more of a, a character study and a narrative driven, I don't know, it's, I don't know that 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 movie transcends being a biopic or docudrama to me. I I love Dog Day Afternoon. Yeah, and yeah, that's that's why I was wondering. Like, that's why I saved that for last because I know that you're a really big fan of that movie. Right, and, and I, I don't wondering. know what list that goes on. I mean, to me, that's that's Dustin Hoffman's best performance is Dog Day Afternoon. Like, mm-hmm. I love that movie, and I love his performance in it. And it, but it's like, I don't know. It's just about so much more. Like, even though it shares thematically some ideas with a couple of these movies. Like Mm -hmm. it transcends just being about those people as people. And it's about more than that. I don't know. Dog afternoon is phenomenal film. Okay. You ready to get started on the list then? Yep. All right. So number five on the list, Frank's already spoiled. It is Ed Wood from 1994 directed by Tim Burton starring Johnny Depp, Martin Landau, Sarah Jessica Parker, Patricia Arquette, Jeffrey Jones, Bill Murray has a 92% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 88% from audiences. Do you want to go and explain a little bit about the background of this movie and um, what you like about it so much? So it's a, it's a telling of um, schlock film director, Ed Wood from sort of the beginning of his film career and his developing friendship with um, an aging Bella Lugosi mm-hmm. 
through the finishing of uh, Plan 9 from Outer Space um, after the death of Lugosi. Um, so I think that's like maybe like a five year period in his life or something like that. Something like that from Glenn or Glenda to, I'm trying, I can't, I can't remember the years, but yeah, it's roughly like five years from Glenn or Glenda to, um, yeah. and I, and I, and honestly, I think Burden and the screenwriter mess with the timeline of they those do. movies. So yeah. Yeah. They, they, they gloss over some stuff and yeah. Um, they, they make it feel more compact, I mean, but it yeah, feels it's, like, it's about, I'd say it's five years roughly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's about a lot of things, really. Like, it's about the idea of, like, the Hollywood machine and how it kind of, like, spits people out over time. It's about um, something that really, like, hit me when I was a, a kid and I watched this movie, which is the the DIY spirit of, like, the independent filmmaker and the feeling that, like, if you have the passion to do something, that if you put your mind to it, you can achieve it. Um, which at the time, you know, as a kid, like I wanted to be a director or like a screenwriter. And I felt like, you know, it gives you kind of hope that you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it tries to portray itself as an interesting look at like the transgender transvestite community in the early, like the first part of the 20th century, you know, the 1950s where... Mm-hmm. It would not have been, you know, I mean, obviously not acceptable at all to, like, be an open, like, homosexual or open, you know, transvestite, transgender. Right. Yeah. Um, that's kind of where I feel like it falls short in some ways because I I think Depp's portrayal of Ed Wood as someone who just feels more comfortable wearing women's clothes is done as, like, comic relief through mm-hmm. a lot of the movie. And not because I don't think that Burton... I don't think that Burton plays it for comic relief. I think that Depp's performance, like he becomes more cartoonish when he's talking about almost to the point where it's like spit takes when someone's like, oh, it's an Angora sweater. And like, you know, he'll like whip his head around and oh, Angora. And his voice changes and maybe that's like a purposeful stylistic choice. And I don't really know. I don't know if I've ever seen Ed Wood outside of like the roles that he's played in his movies. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know like what Ed Wood sounded like, or like, I really don't have an image in my head of him, but um, I don't find it that accurate. It's interesting because I was, so this is like the true nostalgia pick out of this entire list. And again, Thinking about it over the past couple of days, I because I didn't watch Ed Wood was the last one that I watched out of the whole list, and I didn't watch it until Tuesday afternoon, maybe or Wednesday this week. Um, and was sort of a little disappointed by it because it wasn't as great as I remember it being. Um, I was blown away with Johnny Depp's performance when I saw this movie in 1994. Um, and we we saw this in its limited release, I think. And like, cause it was limited release and then it was a full release. And I'm pretty sure that we went to Philadelphia to see this in limited release and was just like amazed by how great it was. And this is when I was like completely in love with Tim Burton too. Um, the saving grace of this movie today is in like a, the majority of it's Martin Landau. It still Absolutely. is. 
an incredible performance as Bella Lugosi as an aging drug addict um, who's really like depressed and suicidal and is kind of saved by this man's affection for him as like a silver screen icon and mm-hmm. sort of like rebuilds his own faith and, you know, trusts in himself and lets him die with like a measure of dignity um, instead of killing himself through like, you know, because he does attempt to commit suicide at one point and he's like, mm-hmm. you know, shooting up morphine and um, Demerol, I think, Demerol Chaser. Um, yeah. And they don't shy away from that. Like they show him with the track marks and stuff, but that performance is fantastic. Um, and then the the minor supporting roles are also really good. Like Bill Murray's good in it, playing on Bunny Bre- Breckenridge. Um, what's his name? Uh, Jeffrey uh, Jones. Jeffrey Jones playing um Criswell. Right. Uh, Lisa Marie in a really minor role playing like Vampira. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Jessica Parker in one of my the few roles that yeah. I really enjoy of hers. Mm-hmm in film as um Ed Wood's like original girlfriend. Right. Um and then is it Patricia Rosanna? Right. Patricia Arquette. Patricia Arquette, yeah. Um later as like his girlfriend. <clears throat> but it's like there's scenes with Depp where it's Depp and Landau. Or where Depp is really like where it's not about him being a caricature, it's just about him like portraying a man. Where he does a really good job. Like, mm-hmm. And I was impressed with a few of the scenes. And especially some stuff when it's just him and Landau talking to each other. Sure. Um, where you can see his compassion and his humanity. Mm-hmm. And he's not just like this dimwit idealist that doesn't realize that he's... You know, like he knows what he's, what he's capable of and he knows what his movies are. But he still is so passionate about, you know, making them that like... I don't know, but he comes off as a joke, like, a lot of the times. Like, and Depp portrays him as a, yeah. as a joke. And I think that's unfortunate, because I think that, I mean, obviously, like, I was, you know, as a 16-year-old kid or 17-year-old kid, like, you don't have the emotional maturity, I think, to recognize what you're actually watching. So, Agreed. those broad strokes come off as being more salient or more important than they actually are, yeah. but... I, I I mean, I know you just mentioned the word passion. I know that's what Burden was going for, is to show the passion of this man making these kind of just really not memorable now, but not very good movies. Yeah. And I saw it as like, I, I didn't laugh once watching it, even though I think there are supposed to be scenes where you laugh. I didn't laugh. There were scenes where, like, and I remember thinking it was really funny. I do, too, when I was younger. When I was younger. Like, I thought it was funny, and it's like, now I just thought it was really sad, and I thought the movie was more focused on still showing how much of a loser he was. Right. It's a little tone deaf. Yes. For somebody that's trying to, I think, celebrate Ed Wood, it doesn't feel very celebratory. Well, the interesting thing, though, is that Burton wasn't the original director that was attached to this movie. It was the guy that directed Airheads. Yeah. Um, who couldn't do it, I think, because of Airheads. Um, so who knows what the movie would have been mm-hmm. like with somebody else's hands. Sure. And I was really in love with Burton at this point in time. Like, I would have, you know, this is coming off, like, really like the heyday of Burton. So you've got Scissorhands and Beetlejuice and um, right before Nightmare Before Christmas or right around the same time. Like, there's a lot of great stuff that Tim Burton had done. 
I mean, I was really into Burton's like artwork and just his like stylistic choices and whatnot. The one thing that really kind of bothered me too about it is that I don't think it's a very well filmed black and white movie. Um, and again, like, so when we were talking about good night and good luck, like that's a movie that uses black and white in the way that it should be filmed, which is Burton's so in love with like flooding the screen and just like blacks, like everything is like washed in black. And there's very, especially when they're filming, they're filming the scenes of him filming the movies. Um, it feels very like hyper stylized and almost like it's too pointed of a use of like the lighting and the way that he films things. It feels unnatural. Um, and a scene that I loved when I was a kid that I actually kind of found grating as an adult. It's the scene where he's in full drag, you know, talking to Orson Welles in some bar, um, in Hollywood. And it's just like, it just comes off as fake and like disingenuous and I don't know. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm shitting on the movie entirely because I still did enjoy watching it. And again, like I thought Landau was fantastic in it and I really enjoyed a lot of the supporting performances, but I just, I think if you film this story today and you had the cross dressing and the idea that Wood was like a big proponent of the transgender community. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I think it would be filmed with a much more deft touch today. I and agree. would probably be more of a powerful and meaningful performance as opposed to just like. Cause bunny, even the scene with bunny Breckenridge, um, trying to get a uh, surgery, um, like gender reassignment surgery down in Mexico is um for the time period yay for bringing it up even right. but it's a punchline right like it gets treated as a as as a punchline at one and then and, and that's the end of that story it is and i mean i just thought like a lot of the except way, for a coda note at the end of the sure film. but i just thought that it was um really unfortunate the way that they handled that and like look i mean we're talking 25 years ago now right. but i mean but still i thought it was really unfortunate the way they handled that especially considering wood was such a member of that community yeah Uh, but i mean they also like it was it is just a joke you know and like i remember shortly after this movie came out um rhino rhino films yeah released the angora collection which was the box Mm -hmm. set that was like covered in it's the only VHS I have left besides uh, Temple of Doom, which was my, was my first VHS, is I have the Angora box set of... Um, so what is that? Glenn and Glenda, Bride of the Monster, Monster and Plan 9? Plan 9, yeah. Right. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a box set, like, literally, like, the box is covered in Angora. Yeah. Like, it's beautiful. That was like they did the, um, the Waters box set that was covered in, like, leopard, like vinyl leopard print or something like yeah, that right. i think uh-huh, uh-huh. like pink leopard print it was it's it's good box yeah it is um but yeah so i don't know that ed wood stands the test of time today um except for a hundred percent landau's performance is just and he won an oscar for this right he best did, supporting yeah. actor definitely yeah. deserved you sure. know like <coughs> just i don't know as yeah, as 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 a as a, as a edgy teenager, I remember being really pissed that Samuel L. Jackson didn't win the Oscar that year for Jules. Um, 
as a more rational adult and rewatching this again, if this movie has anything to it, I agree. It's the Martin Landau performance yes. and the scenes with him and Depp, I think like in, in that story line. Yeah. It's, it's, it's heartbreaking. Even like it's, it's probably Depp's best moment in the film. Um, when Landau has been kicked out of rehab and he's gone yes. home and he's dressed all in black, like he's in mourning and he's walking out of the house and he just wants, he wants Ed to film like this long scene of him like walking because you get the impression that he knows that he's done and he knows that he's going to die soon. And he just wants to have like this one last moment of being filmed and being able to act. And, um, you know, and then they later, they cut to the scene with wood in the screening room, just like watching that brief, like minute long scene, like repeatedly and like crying. And it's just, it's, it's really effective. And that's the problem too, is like, I think this is the movie, and I can't say this 100%, but this is what propels Johnny Depp from being the 21 Jump Street guy to being an actual actor. And it's what, like, it's what in my my mind, like, when he was in the Pirates movies and, like, later, um, well, like, Donnie Brasco and stuff, like, what I Mm -hmm. thought back to is, like, oh, well, like, this is what shows he can be a real actor. And I think you see moments of it, but I think you also see seeds as to why he's not as respected in our like in the modern day Mm -hmm. as an actor because he lacks when when he has the chance to go for nuance he'll often fall back on just over the top i don't know gimmickry yeah and it's just kind of and and the only thing that's changed over time is the gimmicks that he falls back on. Right, right. I mean, it's right. it's much more like f- frantic and yeah, I don't know, like psychotropic now than it was. Yeah, then. but I mean, it's Hunter. It's, it's he he falls back on Hunter Thompson since nineteen ninety eight or whatever it was. Like, and before that, I don't know what it is that he's falling back on here necessarily. Right. But yeah, he was falling back on something there. Yeah, but I mean, he definitely like there's times you know, especially, um. Early on when Sarah Jessica Parker's like, you know, I don't know where my sweaters are going. And this is like, wah, wah, wah. You know, and he makes like a, almost like a Bugs Bunny, like bug-eyed, like tugging at his collar, like, Mm -hmm. face, you know, and it's just, I don't know. Yeah, which which is funny because, I mean, when you want to see this, I'm assuming you and your friends had, were familiar with things like Leonard Glenda and Plan 9 and all that? Um, I had seen Plan 9, definitely. Yeah. Um... This movie brought Plan 9. Plan 9 was something that you would see on, like, Channel 54 on, like, a Saturday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, This is what, like, brought it back into prominence and kind of, like, re-kick-started the idea that, like... Yeah, I think this and Seinfeld, really. Like, the kitsch movie yeah. was something that could be... I mean, because, honestly, like, during this time, all you really have that sort of fits that bill is Rocky Horror. Right. And that was, like, truly an underground thing at the time in, like, the early 90s where True. it wasn't this thing where, quote-unquote, normal people were like, oh, I'm going to go, whatever, go be bohemian for a night and go watch Rocky Horror. It was mm-hmm. things where, like, you know, it was kind of scary, almost. And, like, the idea of this guy that was this cross-dresser and, like, made these movies was sort of like a very very small like niche thing um and it sort of made it more acceptable to like laugh at like the bad movies so yeah like i knew who ed wood yeah. was and i knew yeah because bledsoe had discovered ed wood 
like a couple a couple years before I think this movie came out, and we had watched Plan Nine and Glenn or Glenda, and I think there's a third one that's not the Bride of the Monster. Street that, Trash is that what it's called? Something like that. Something like that. I can't remember, but yeah, there was a third one that we had watched, and we were huge. Still, I still am like you know huge fans of Plan Nine, and like um. We, because uh, one of the teachers would let us like bring in movies during lunch, and we would watch stuff during lunch with um Orion, who's also been on the podcast, right. and like, um, and we would um we would watch that stuff. So like Orion's a big Plan Nine fan, like, and we were all like big fans before this came out, and um yeah, I remember I I guess like as I've gotten older. When I was younger, I I would laugh at Ed Wood's movies, and I would laugh at them. And I, I still don't know if I'm not laughing at them, but I I was laughing to some degree at the filmmaker who made them. Yeah. And I don't know. It just feels wrong to do that to me as I'm older. Like, so, I mean, of course, they're awful and they're funny. Like, you know, and some of the dialogue is just atrocious and, you know, like, but it's like there's um, and I felt like this movie doesn't do a very good job of trying to show that. Uh, the the it doesn't do a good job, and this is the major criticism of it, and I agree with it. Um, is that it doesn't do a good job of showing you who Edward was. I agree with that, and I I blame that a lot on on Depp's performance. I think, yeah, like I think that I think with some more nuance, I think that the elements are there where it could have shown him. It just feels like I'm like laughing at a dude, and I don't even know if that's really the dude. I don't think it was because you don't even know who he is. Because the whole thing again, and like not 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 to belabor this movie like too mm. much, but there's the scene where he is beset by the fundamentalist people that are like, you know, funding the movie, and then yeah. everyone's kind of giving him like a hard time on the set, mm-hmm. and he comes back out wearing like the complete female getup, and right. it's not about like showing a man like number one being strong enough and confident enough and like himself to be that in public but also like a really interesting idea that like like what is it about people that like why is that what makes him comfortable like it's right. just it's just a punchline it's it just is, him right. like he just reappears and he's in. Yeah. There's no exploration of his psyche or character whatsoever. Right. He's just this is this is what I'm going to do, and he pops back up and then right. like freaks out and goes he sure. goes and has the worst. And I think well. this is one of those things about docudramas. It's like to me, it's like what is the point here? Other like if the point like they've stated is to show his passion. I don't think. I mean, sure. I, I guess to some degree they do that, but I don't get to know anything about him. Right. I don't really, other than the fact that he's obsessed with making these movies. I don't know anything about this person and about his character. And I think that's like, I have to walk away with something, whether it's like, you know, and you were kind of stating this early on, like when we first started, like, what are you walking away with? And I think that, (coughs) I think that's a big part of docudramas is you need to walk away with something, whether it's about a cause, whether it's about a person. And to some degree, I think it has to be either leave questions that you need to think about, or it needs to be inspiring in some way. And I'm not, I think this is supposed to be inspiring, I think, a little bit. And it is 25 years later, I don't, maybe I, when I was younger, maybe I thought that. And now I don't. I think that's the big thing for me. I mean, it, it was, it was inspiring 25 yeah. years ago. Like, yeah. as a 17 year old kid, there was a definite feeling of like, man, like I can do anything. 
Like, if this right. guy can get movies right. made, then I can go get movies yeah. made. But unfortunately, sure. like, I right. don't know that it, I don't know that it stands that test of time. Okay. And also, it's like Sarah Jessica Parker's like, she loves him, she accepts him, then she doesn't accept him. Right. Then she accepts him again, then she leaves him. And it's right. like. Which may very well be the way that that all played out. But yeah, again, maybe. what is what is the relationship between those characters and why is that happening? Right. So I yeah I'm I'm a, I'm probably a little bit more down on this than you are because I don't think I had quite the nostalgia you had for it already, um, but yeah I I didn't think this held up 25 years yeah. later. I mean we saw it twice in the theater because we saw it. Like I said, we I'm almost positive we saw this in its limited release, and then I kind of remember watching this in Predaporte, mm-hmm. like either back to back or within like a day of each other at um the Christiana movies. Um so yeah. Yeah. Um I I'll go on the record right now though saying even though I don't like this as much 25 years later, I still like it better than Predaporte. Oh, a terrible movie. Ready to Wear is the worst. Right. Like awful. <laughs> so much I heard about that movie when I was younger like oh I think EW, EW always got you. Like, you read Entertainment Weekly when you were a kid, and it's like, they're always like, oh my, this is amazing. This is like, you know, you should check. Awful. Predator is Altman, right? Yes. Yeah, that's why, I, that's yeah. why I went to see it. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Okay, you ready to move on? Yep. Okay. Um. So, number four on your list is the movie Milk from 2008. It is directed by Gus Van Zandt, starring Sean Penn, Emil Hirsch, Josh Brolin, James Franco, and Allison Pill has a 93% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 89% from audiences. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the background of this movie and why you like it so much? Um, so this is an account of the rise of Harvey Milk um, from a openly gay San Francisco businessman Um I guess in the late 1960s, mm-hmm. um, through his increasing involvement in political activism and gay rights activism, um, to becoming a, a town selectman for San Francisco or city city selectman, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and his eventual murder um, at the hands of Dan White, who was a disgraced selectman, or a, not really disgraced, but like someone who he, he had been fired from the job. Um, Really amazing portrayal of um, Harvey Milk by Sean Penn. Um, when I was younger, uh, there's two things actually that really like drew me to this movie when it came out. Uh, the first is the Dead Kennedys, which is one of my favorite bands from when I was a kid, um, have a song called I Fought the Law and I Won, which is about Dan White murdering uh, George Moscone, who was the mayor of San Francisco, and Harvey Milk. Um and in the liner notes of the album, um, had a really long, like, description of, like, what happened and, like, um, Dan White's Twinkie defense, which is that he was eating too much fast food, which, like, unbalanced his brain. And, um, and then The Life and Times of Harvey Milk's documentary, um, really powerful documentary about, you know, him as an activist, him as a person, um, him kind of bringing, like, gay rights to the forefront of a national conversation. Um, I think 
Penn does a really great job of capturing Harvey Milk's mannerisms. Um, I don't feel like it ever devolves into caricature at all, which I think is difficult when you're playing somebody that's as like flamboyant and, you know, Harvey Milk was like definitely uh, an outspoken, lively personality. Um, And I think that Penn invests a lot of like nuance and humanity in that role. Um, I think Franco like is the second best performance in the film and maybe like a one B as the counterpoint to that is the more um, down to earth, the more reasonable, like balanced to milk. Um, And Brolin, I think is fantastic as a guy that could have been played as a cookie cutter, like, ultra fundamentalist Christian boogeyman villain, but is portrayed as just a guy that's kind of lost and uncertain about his own, mm-hmm. like his own feelings and, you know, trying to be like a decent person and still stick to his morals and how he's kind of conflicted and sort of like manipulated by other forces, including Harvey Milk. I mean, I don't think they shy away from, showing that Milk kind of, like, uses Dan White to a point and then sort of abandons him, which kind of leads to his feelings of alienation. But it's 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 a very human human portrayal of a guy that could have just been, like, I don't know, like a prop almost. I agree. Um, That's a credit to the writers, yeah. I think it's a really, really effective look at, like, a distinct time in a city's history, and it feels authentic, like, when you're watching it, like, the... And I know it's probably not difficult to, like, costume and build a set for something that's so recent, you know, um, in history. But it, it it feels authentic and it feels, I don't know, it's just, it's, it's, it's well-paced. It tells a good story. Um, I think it's not overly preachy in trying to force you to feel a certain way about things. I mean, obviously, it's very anti- you know, religious right. It's very anti-moral majority. Right. Um, very anti, like, Phyllis Schlafly and Oral Roberts. And, you know, it, it very strongly against that. But I I don't know. As, like, a morally conscious adult, I don't know how you can't be, like, against that kind of mindset. And uh, maybe that's just me. Um, yeah, I, I was just, sorry. I was just laughing because you said Oral Roberts and I was automatically Oral Hershiser. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just throwing them pitches. Okay. Um... Is Oral Hershiser a pitcher? Yes. Okay. Let's see. I don't even know. Um, the only criticism I really have of the movie is, I don't know if this is so much a criticism because I think that, I think there's only so much when you're telling the story of a, a person that you can put in a movie. And I think that you have to like pick and choose what propels the narrative and what tells like a compelling story and what would just drag things down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Milk had polyamorous relationships most of his life and was not super um monogamous and i i think what they do is i think they take i think they give you little glimpses that show that he's definitely willing to have like multiple partners and then they take a lot of those partners and compile them into um i can't remember the character's name but the um his the, one, his one lover that's a little like uh, 
a little crazy. Well, you, like not a little crazy, super crazy, and ends up like taking his yeah, own life. Yeah, he's like a yeah. I mean, um, he's a. It's obvious he's a borderline personality. Right, super yeah. obsessive, very yeah. jealous, yeah. very sure. low self esteem. Right, um, and I, I think they kind of compile all of that into that and show that Milk was willing to sacrifice personal relationships. Right. For his beliefs, like his political beliefs and his like activism, and that kind of like led to people being hurt. Um, but yeah, like some really poignant moments in this movie, some really great, again, like a, a straight man playing a gay man without doing it in a way that feels pandering or condescending in any way. Yeah. Like it's not, he's not a caricature really ever. Um, towards the end of the movie, he comes off as like learning to be as vicious and you know, like politically savvy as anybody else. And even like makes that, what does he say? Like when, Oh, uh, well, at the very end with the, the conversation false, you and I had false tweet or whatever. Yeah. Like, um, it's like, I, yeah. Like the mayor sits there and says something along the lines of like, you'd think I was talking to a, to the boss tweed right now or something like that, or like a city boss. And, um, and uh yeah like uh milk says something along the lines of like you know think about that like you know uh, a gay man is like a city boss like i kind of like it um yeah i that that really floored me like that they want that route especially because it's right before right, the he, assassination like moments before sure like two minutes like maybe three something yeah. like that and to the point where, like, I wasn't sure if I was reading it correctly because I, I expect I'm so used to any more any biopics or docudramas where everything has to be sunshine all right. the time that I was, I guess, so floored by the idea that they would because what the movie's doing is it's not questioning that the things that that things need to be done. You know, it's obvious that, like, his cause is worthy. That's never a question in the movie. But at the very end, you get this question of, did he go about it the right way completely? Even though the cause is worthy, right. did he himself as an individual do all the right things in route in, in route to that? And I by, by kind of questioning his tactics, yeah, it, it does, I think. I think it deserves a lot of credit for doing that. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's again, I think it's a very nuanced and compelling look at, like, the life of a person who was a political trailblazer and who mm. basically affected a lot of positive change, not only in his own community, but I think nationwide, and sort of, like, helped to publicize the idea that, like, just because someone's gay doesn't mean that they're not a person and not, like, you know, like, a important member of your community. Sure. Um, well, I mean, there's a direct link between that and the fact that in 2019 we have a gay man running for president who's polling 15, 16 percent right. in Iowa right now. I mean, I, but um, I, I I love the way it's filmed. Like, I like the. I I think San Francisco is an amazing city to see on film. Yeah. Um, maybe one of the best cities in the country. Yeah. Um, and they do a good job of filming it with that like hazy like ever present sunny feeling to it and i don't know it's 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 just a really good movie and really great performances like by a lot of i always forget allison pills in it but i like her a lot in it too mm 
Um, she's a pretty underrated mm-hmm. actress, honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, in one of my other favorite movies from like around the same time period in a uh, Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just a really. Good I movie. think Emil Hirsch is really good. Like Emil Hirsch was he like is. my pick, like. 15 years ago to be like one of like the top actors in Hollywood because I was so impressed with him when he was young and like it was like three or four movies in a row I just even if the movie wasn't good I thought he just nailed like what he was doing and um like he's become a character actor I guess and just somehow never broke through but um he's um I, I thought like his that character's transformation from kind of you know um Bon Vivant like yeah like a like a like a Boy no, toy prostitute. Almost. I mean, he was right. prostitute into being almost. this kind of like right hand to He's trying to be a little more. Yeah, I, I yeah, I'm just going to call it for what it is. I mean, he um into his right hand. I mean, I thought that was right. um you know like a, a really compelling transformation slowly through the course of the movie because they didn't really talk about it that much. Um and. You just kind of see it visually, and I thought that worked really well, and I think Hirsch did a really good job yeah, I agree. with that. So you brought up one of the criticisms already uh, in terms of um, – this is coming from Chris Tukey um, from a UK paper, The Daily Mail. He, um, he addresses in a couple paragraphs the problem with the screenplay in terms of not going through – not portraying all of Melk's like affairs, like, you know, and those kind of things. And, um, apparently four of his ex lovers committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, um, and then, uh, Either, so hold on. Let me, let me, let me stop that. Like, I, I don't have data, you know, I'm not a yeah. sociologist, but I would imagine that the amount of, gay male suicides during that time during that time period is probably disproportionately high i I would agree to you know just the overall population sure then last um apparently he was uh processing uh hardcore gay pornography in his photo store that also doesn't get. He's just going through a list of things that don't get mentioned that have been criticisms of Melk's character that the movie just drops off. So I was just kind of going through that list, and but you've already kind of addressed those issues right. of. So again, like in any in any biopic, in any like, whenever you're telling a real story about something, you have to pick and choose what goes in. Like you can't tell the entire detail by detail life story of anyone i don't think without it being like like how long would that movie be and honestly like the themes of the movie are about activism and empowerment and the acceptance of this population as being culturally culturally and like sociologically relevant in a time where people were still trying to demonize that portion of the population and what benefit does it serve for you to demonize it by being like, oh, well, look at this pornography he was making. Look at these people that killed themselves. Like, I mean, like, pick your battle, right? Like, right. that's not, it's not relevant to the story they're telling. So let me go on to the next point that he brings up is he says that um, 
Gus Van Sant also chooses to end his movie before the violent gay riots that accompany the sentencing of Milk's assassin Dan White. That's James Brolin making a valiant stab at a foolishly underwritten part. Clearly, the reason why Van Sant has decided to tone down the less respectful aspects of Milk's life and death is that he fears they would help the anti-gay marriage movement. That's also presumably why he chooses to portray anyone opposed to gay rights, the precise nature of which are made less than clear in this movie, as revoltingly bigoted. All I would say is that Van Zant should take a look at Frost Nixon and learn that it's always better to understand your enemy. And before you write off as a hopeless write me off as a hopeless homophobe, let me add then that I'm in sympathy with some of Milk's aims and believe this film has a role to play in encouraging political activism by members of minority communities. The frustrating aspect of the movie is that it could and should have been a moving drama. Instead, it settles for being agitprop. No, that's that's. I mean, whatever. I respect that. That's how that guy feels, but I don't mm-hmm. agree. I think that he's. But he's in sympathy with some of Milk's aims and right. believes that the film has a role in encouraging political activism among members of minority groups. Frank, right? <laughs> um. I don't know. Like, what's, so what's, I, what's I mean, well, let's that? break down like the, the, a couple of things out of this argument real quick that I that I do want you to address. That, um, so the time period this comes out in, which is two thousand and eight, right? Prop eight's happening in California. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence uh, whatsoever. Probably not. Um, so um, I mean, the years leading up to Prop eight, like it's a big issue in California at the time. So, I mean, like, this movie, what, goes in production 06, 07, you know I mean? and gets released. So, I mean, I, I think that, like, there's probably some rationale to it being released during that time. Um, so, how do you feel about, like, the, the claim that, one, Brolin's, I mean, we've discussed this a little bit, Brolin's portrayed as bigoted. And, and like you said, you admitted like that the, the religious right is just portrayed kind of like, especially the religious right, I think, is portrayed more as bigoted than Dan White is myself. That's right. Me, that's me speaking. But um, but all those things are done in service to this idea that um, it's political propaganda. I guess that's the big one to really. Like, do you see do, do, do you see any realm where this is political propaganda? Okay, so I don't think Dan White is demonized in this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you watch like the actual Life and Times of Harvey Milk documentary, Dan White demonizes himself much more mm-hmm. as like a real person. And the religious right, they that's not it, it's not fictionalization of what these people were saying. It's not they're not making up scenarios like they're taking actual words that came out of these people's mouths and just presenting now if harvey milk comes off as a more sympathetic character against what's um bob odenkirk's character whatever that character he plays oh yeah um the senator or whatever uh uh-huh if him and phyllis shaffley come off as villains Uh in comparison to harvey milk Maybe that's because they kind of are, right? Like that's not that that's not like a political agenda. That's just showing this is what both sides were saying, 
And if you fall on the side of Harvey Milk, you know, maybe that's just because that's the side of right. And not to say that he was like a saint or a perfect person or whatever, because obviously he's not. And I don't think the movie even tries to like present him in that, in that capacity. But like, you know, people that come out and say that gay people like don't deserve to live and they deserve to go to hell. I mean, that's like, we, 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 we need to move past like having those kind of ideas in this world and just understand that people are going to be who they are and you need to look at them as like an actual person and not, there's a funny meme now about like X is not a personality, right? Like, mm-hmm. and it's whatever like thing right. that you're into. Sure. Gay is not a personality, right? Mm-hmm. Like being gay isn't like some personality trait. It's just part of who you are as a person. If that's what you are. And we need to move past the idea that like, we're just defining people by this one thing, this one like facet of who you are is everything that you are. So, I mean, was it politically motivated in some way to release this movie during like a debate about like taking away the rights of people just because of who they have sex with? Like, okay, I'm all right with that. Like if you're coming out on the side of right in that instance, like I'm not going to back down from this guy because he wants to be a bigot. You know what I mean? Like that makes your opinion, like you're whatever (laughs) F that dude. What was, who was that? He was a UK, uh, film reviewer. Fucking from the daily mail. Brexit fucking supporter. And goddamn there. Oh, fuck him. Boris Johnson's pet name. Probably right. Chris Tukey. Uh, okay. Let's move to something less, um, Controversial. We'll talk about right. we'll talk about serial killer serial now killer. Um, yeah. in the USSR. <clears throat> okay, so number three on the list is Citizen X from 1995. It is directed by Chris Garolmo and is starring Stephen Ray, Donald Sutherland, Jeffrey Demun, and Max von Sydow. And it has an 88 percent from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 86 percent from audiences. Do you want to go ahead and tell us a little about this um, probably not very well-known movie and um, what you like about it so much? So it's a HBO Films production, 95, like you said. Um, basically about the crimes of Andre Chikatilo, who's one of the most like notorious serial killers ever, and the efforts of Stephen Ray playing the head investigator, but law enforcement in Russia to capture and investigate him against the pressure of um, the Soviet party and the KGB to pretend like those things don't happen in Soviet Russia Um, spans 15 years ish, maybe Um, long period of time, like 80, 84 to 91, maybe like 80 to 91 or something something like like that. that. Yeah. Um, and about Stephen Ray, like, doggedly pursuing this guy who was murdering um, children in the infirm, um, you know, by basically hiding in plain sight and taking advantage of the fact that no one wanted to admit that bad things happened in the Soviet Union. Um, Donald Sutherland, amazing performance. Um as a colonel who sees the righteousness in what Ray is trying to do 
and uses his knowledge and um, mastery of like the communist party system to sort of help him achieve his goals. Um, Cedal really good in a minor role as a psychi- psychologist that sort of helps to profile uh, Chikatilo. Um, just a really, one of the things I like most about this movie is it's one of the few movies and actually as like a point of like really good comparison, um, the Chernobyl series on HBO, Mm -hmm. uh, did the same thing recently where they're not forcing Russian accents on people that aren't Russian. You know, like people are just like, these actors are speaking in their natural accents and, um, Lends almost like an air, like more of an air of credibility to it. Like it feels like, well, it's important that it takes place in Russia because obviously, like one of the biggest points is the fact that, you know, the um, Politburo, I think, or whatever, like the the Communist Party higher ups are trying to suppress the fact that these things are happening and trying to force it on. It's the homosexual community. Right. It's gangs that are like murdering people. Right. Um, well, there's as- that aspect of the fact that it's the Soviet Union. There's also the aspect of it that they're so isolated that they don't have much contact with other countries and their crime. Right. Or like the solving technology. organization or the technology. So like it's like kind of like this Stephen Ray character um, is reinventing. Right. Profiling and um, like the, the investigative techniques to catch serial killers. And. Like in isolation. Simultaneously with the same efforts being done at like Quantico and whatever by the FBI. Right. Um, to develop like true, you know, profiling techniques like sure. they were doing it. Right. Um, but in isolation, you know, without the ability to do like real DNA testing right. or have like true police procedure where yeah. crime scenes are wiped out by people walking through them. Right. And, um, yeah, I thought that was the most powerful scene for me like in this it actually almost like brought a tear to my eye is when Sutherland is promoted to general right in it and he promotes Stephen Ray to colonel to and starts it basically opens up the like you know the 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 floodgates for him so that he can start investigating for real with no um interference but he starts telling him that he's been in contact with the FBI and tells him that he the Stephen Ray character like his investigation is being used in classes at right. Quantico as like examples of good, like, you know, investigative work. Um, and uh, it was a, a great speech by Sutherland, like him delivering it in this fairly subdued way of just being factual, but being ultra supportive right. and, you know, um, honoring this guy and like letting him know like despite all these problems like you know you are you know i respect everything that you've done and he just keep any any and it's right there's repetition to it i can't remember what it is but it's like and i have to agree or something like that he's giving the assessment from the fbi of yeah that's a really good scene yeah there's actually a scene like earlier in the movie that is similar to that but I, i like a lot where um the lieutenant or whatever that's working for stephen ray um, who's gone from being kind of like this brash knucklehead cop that just wants to like kick down doors and beat people up to kind of coming around to like being on his side. And um, they're in a field investigating one of the murders and everybody stays back and Stephen Ray goes forward and kind of like crouches over the body and examines it. 
And um, Sutherland says something like, what's he doing? And the lieutenant says he likes to go in and view the scene as completely as possible before we walk in and like disturb anything. And he's like, oh, that's really smart. And he says, well, not, not much he does. It's dumb. And it's just this really good scene of like showing this guy who was like a dyed in the wool, like thug almost like has come around to these mm-hmm. real like methodical investigative techniques that Stephen Ray is, um, you know, has developed. And then there's also like the, I don't know, grand Guignol like aspect of, you know, Chikatilo himself is like seeing that part of it, like watching him and they, they don't glorify the murders very much. Like there's not, Mm-mm. I don't know if you necessarily ever even see like a knife penetrate a body or there's one scene, I think early on where you actually see him stabbing someone. If I remember. Yeah, that's correctly. true. But like it's the, most, sh- the only one. And after that, they are very usually good they just about show it in slow motion of the body falling. Like, right. Just... Or like him kind of coming down into the right. camera, like, um, um, with like a f- blow or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but I don't, I, I don't know that actor, but that's a really like creepy performance. Oh, you, you do actually. But, um, I can't remember what it is from now. I mean, the thing he's famous for the the guy that plays the serial killer is um he um he played Dale in The Walking Dead. Dale. Oh, okay. He's the old guy in the beginning, like of the, right, right, right. Yeah, of the series. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is a movie that you know him from. Actually, I think I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at him now. He's in The Hitcher, The Blob, uh, Green Mile. Yeah. I think there's something else. Too. Really good, though, in Citizen X. Yeah, he is, um, yeah. Yeah, this is a movie that... I mean, we we didn't have cable when I was a kid um, in Cecil County. Like, where we lived, nothing went out that way. Um, but we got satellite TV in the mid-90s. And one of the things we had was HBO. And I remember just, like, watching this on a Friday night or something. Um... And being blown away by how good it was and like really like enjoying it. And, you know, I, I knew who Stephen Ray was. I, Donald Sutherland, always been one of my favorite actors. Obviously, I knew Donald Sutherland. And because I was sort of obsessed with serial killers, I knew who Chikatilo was. Um, but it was a really interesting and fascinating look, I thought, at like um, those crimes and also just the bureaucracy yes. and the methodology of like, you know, um, criminal investigation like mm-hmm. within these confines mm-hmm. um, and I think it stands up to that I, I think it I think it holds up today I think it's still a really great movie yeah I, I had never seen this before I never even heard about it until you um you mentioned it and it's actually for as of uh, July uh, June 14th um, 2019 it's on prime right now mm-hmm. um, if you have a prime subscription through Amazon but uh so I, I was I was able to watch it pretty quickly, like after you mentioned it, and um, I was, yeah, I was really blown away by this. I mean, like as somebody who loves crime movies and stuff yeah. like that, and like kind of crime investigation, like I thought this was a really interesting twist on the whole thing by looking at it from inside such a deep bureaucracy that's trying to pretend these things don't exist. And I really like the Sutherland character. Like, you know how, like, I can be kind of mixed on Sutherland sometimes, mm. but... Um, Wrongly so. <laughs> this is um, this is definitely him in, like, the... Uh, his JFK mode. Like, yes. that, that character X, right, that he plays in JFK. Like, that kind of, like, 
bright eyed, like myster like little mysterious, like not giving you all the information. Um, he's in that mode in this, and I really like that mode. I love him in JFK for that five minutes, you know, six minutes that he's in it, and kind of like goes gives him all these different pieces of like you know things that he didn't know already about the Kennedy assassination, but. Um, he does really good in this, and I think it's really interesting to watch, like, the tactics that he has to use, knowing the politics of the situation, to be able to just get this guy a little bit of wiggle room for, like, half the movie, I guess right. it is. Like, you know, just to give him even a little bit of breathing room to keep this investigation going, all the politics he has to play. Right. And then the ultimate politics that he has to play in order to actually, like, give him full access to, like, everything that he needs. Um, I really thought that it was... Um, and that you don't know, like, even Stephen Ray and his wife in that movie question whether they can trust him. And, you know, because they... And, that, and that's a really, really uh, awful environment, it feels like, you know, yeah, to, like, not be able to sure. know whether who you can trust. And this guy seems like he's your friend and he's supporting you, but... You don't know, and I thought that added an extra level of tension to it. Um, I, I, yeah, I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad their dysfunctional country can bring me enjoyment. I guess surprised yeah. we had never talked about this movie like yeah. much before because I really I, I like this movie a lot. Yeah, no, I loved it. Yeah. I'll um I'll use this opportunity too again as like a a chance to say that if you haven't watched Chernobyl, you like you should watch it because it's really good. Yeah, um, very similar ideas of like how much are you willing to cover up about a terrible thing in order to save face on the grand stage? Even if it means like the death of, right. you know, so many of your citizens. Um, but very, very similar, not, not necessarily stylistically, but like ideologically in terms. So it's maybe a good double feature. Um, but yeah, I really like the movie and I think that it's worth, mm. worth watching. I was just told the other day that, Instagram influencers apparently are flocking to Chernobyl to um, take videos and pictures of themselves like after the massive success of this uh, HBO miniseries. No, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> Just thought I'd mention it. Right. Maybe they'll get eaten by a two-headed dog or something. I don't know. Yeah, there was um, nothing that really stood out in terms of criticism of this movie. Um Probably not much criticism. I there, not a lot. There was only like four reviews that, and like, I don't even think there was links to any of them on Rotten yeah. Tomatoes. So I tried to do some other digging and couldn't really find much because it was an HBO movie um, from, you know, uh, 25 years ago almost. So right. um, it was a little hard. I read through audience reviews and a lot of it was just kind of things like... Um, they didn't think the movie was that interesting, you know those kind of things that we you can't you can't really sure. respond to like in depth because it's the old boring argument. So, um, so yeah. So, any final thoughts on this? No. Um, again, like it's it's nice that it's on Prime and that people have access to it. So, yeah. if um anyone who's listening hasn't seen it, it's what like ninety minutes long or something like that. It's like, yeah, it's not very long. It's not a long movie. Yeah. Um, definitely worth watching. Yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and move on to number two. Okay. Okay, so number two on the list is Zodiac from 2007, directed by David Fincher, starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Mark Ruffalo, Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Edwards, Brian Cox, and I'll stop there considering I could read off another probably 15 or 20 yeah. names. Um, it has a critic score from Rotten Tomatoes of an 89%, audience score of 77%. 
Um, Frank, you want to give a little bit of background about this movie and what you like about it so much? Um, so much in the same way that Citizen X kind of tells the contemporaneous stories of like Chikatilo murdering people and then the efforts of the people to catch them. Um, this is the same thing with the Zodiac Killer in San Francisco in the, what is that, like late 60s through the 70s? Yeah. Um, sort of showing the killings that are attributed to the Zodiac Killer. Um, and then the efforts of the San Francisco Police Department and members of the San Francisco Chronicle to sort of figure out who this killer is and kind of the steps through the investigation and um, focuses mostly on um, Jake Gyllenhaal as uh, Robert Graysmith, um, who was a cartoonist who became obsessed with the idea of figuring out the Zodiac Killer and Robert Avery, who was um, played by um, Robert Downey Jr., Richard Avery. Who, Paul, Paul Avery. Paul Avery. Yeah. Um, Richard Avery's a cartoonist, I think. Yeah. Um, the crime investigative journalists, uh, both who, you know, were trying to kind of work with the police and also on their own to crack the identity of the Zodiac Killer. Um, I think epic in the truest sense of the terms, of the term in the sense that it takes place over the course of, you know, 20 plus years of trying to figure out exactly who like perpetrated these murders, what murders should be attributed to the killer. Um, a lot of really, it, it, it's a good balance of being like a procedural crime mm -hmm. drama, which can be kind of boring mm -hmm. with also being a character study and, like a legitimate like murder mystery um for murders that have never been solved and are still a mystery to this day um based off of Graysmith's book like titular book Zodiac um which definitely places the majority of suspicion at uh, the Arthur Lee Allen um character i say but like the the person that they believe was the actual he believes was the actual killer um and i think fincher believes as well like through his direction that that guy was responsible mm -hmm. for it um so maybe doesn't do the best job of like showing the entire in the same way that like the criticism of milk is that you don't get the entire picture um you might not get the entire picture of people that they suspected and things that came to light, like after the events of this film end. Um, but also in all fairness is based off of Graysmith's book. And, you know, Graysmith obviously is invested in the idea that Arthur Lee Allen did it. Um, really great performances and a really great look at how like being obsessed with something can lead to like, other parts of your life falling apart. Um, both of the fact that, you know, even though it's not implicitly stated, like, you know, you kind of see Grace Smith's second marriage fall apart. Right. Um, to the close 70 character. Um, Avery falling into like drunkenness and losing a prominent sure. position at, um, the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, oh shit. The guy that plays Mark, Mark Ruffalo playing Detective Tashi. Tashi, yeah. Um, like him sort of coming under suspicion of 
certainly maybe even like forging things like through mm-hmm. the police department and kind of falling out of favor and right. having to rebuild his career. Sure. And he ends up actually serving in the end as a positive role model, it seems, of trying to distance yourself from the obsession, right. like just removing yourself from it completely. <clears throat> and then you can't let one, probably something like not being a police officer, but probably something that people in that line of work or anything where you're like serving the public in that capacity where they're not always going to be victories and you can't right. like, I don't know, like cast personal shadow on your entire career based on like one thing not going the right way. Um, but really compelling look at um, uh, pretty, what must have been like a terrifying time in San Francisco. Um, again, Fincher does an incredible job of capturing the look and feel of that city. Um, Fincher for me is like kind of hot and cold. And I think sometimes he's phenomenal and sometimes not so much, but like here, I think he does a really good job of pacing the movie. Um, Where even though it's, it's a pretty long movie. Like there's only a couple of times, maybe two thirds of the way through the movie where you kind of just feel like, all right, like let's just, Let's just get it done. Like, let's just move through. Is it right before it almost totally takes Graysmith's perspective? Is it like right before that time? And you kind of start, and he starts investigating full force? Yeah, there's like, there's a really compelling and well done scene when Graysmith goes to visit Avery, who's living on a houseboat. Right. After he's gone to work for the San Francisco Bee. Um, that scene is fantastic. And then there's just this. 25 minute period where it's just kind of like it feels like they're just spinning their wheels to mm-hmm. like give you a little more information just to move to the end of the movie yeah um but i don't know like I, so again when i was young i was pretty um pretty obsessed with like serial killers and learning about serial killers and um at, dur- during the time when I was really into like learning about the Zodiac, you also had the Green River Killer, which was a another one that was like unsolved and mm-hmm. felt like it was never going to be solved. Um, and that idea of like someone being able to murder people anonymously and kind of just like sink back into the darkness is really pretty terrifying that mm-hmm. that's like possible. And I know that you know DNA evidence and procedural like um practice wasn't the same in the 70s and late late 60s and 70s but um it's it's a pretty incredible portrayal of like that time period and just the the paranoia and the fear that led to like these people being obsessed with feeling like they had to solve it um and almost to the exclusion of actually caring about solving the crime and more just about proving themselves right or proving that they can do it um they sort of gloss over a little bit, like, all the effort that's gone into, like, cracking those ciphers and how... I'm pretty sure that, like, one of the ciphers still has never been, like, fully, mm-hmm. like, cracked. Um, but, yeah, just great, great performances. Um, really well filmed. I, and an amazing soundtrack. Like, it's got... Yeah. Um, it's songs that aren't inherently menacing used in scenes that imbue them with a feeling of menace. Mm. 
like um the Roly Poly Man mm-hmm. song, and then um there's a Donovan song later that's used that like it it just it, it makes it feel like um I don't know I can't remember. There's a song they open the movie with. Shit, what song is that? I can't remember what it is. Sorry. But it's it's really good and like really menacing, and it's like it shouldn't be, but it is. And Fincher does a great job with that. Um, and top to bottom, like it's 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 a pretty star studded cast. Yeah, and there's not any bad performances in it, and like it's all. Yeah, it's like a who's who of character actors. It really is. I mean, it's like Brandy was sitting here like folding laundry just while I was watching it. And she was, she was like, "Oh, that person's in this too. Right. That person's in this." Like we got like Brian Cox and Anthony Edwards, right. and um, but it's like uh, Donald Logue, yeah, Donald Logue. Uh, what's his name? Uh, the, the, the Chris Keller from Oz. Um, oh right, uh, Elias Cotis. Right? No, Molinex. Oh, that's not who I'm thinking of. Um, the guy that's on it was on SVU for years. The detective, he plays one of the uh, chiefs of those small areas. <clears throat> hmm. I don't know, but yeah, but the, I mean, yeah, it's it. The cast is huge. I mean, um, Philip Baker Hall's in it. Right. Yeah. Adam Goldberg, um, yeah, Adam Goldberg in like a two second. Dermot Moroni yeah. is in it. Yeah, John, Moroni's really good. As John the, Carroll Lynch plays Arthur uh, Lee Allen. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy Simpson in a small role at one point. Clea Duvall's in it. Like, I mean, there's just all these, like, you know. Yeah, but, um, so it's, it's interesting because it definitely pushes forth Grace Smith's firm belief that, um, uh, Lee Allen, yeah, Arthur Lee Allen. Arthur Lee Allen is is the Zodiac killer, right? Um, How do you feel um, about? Does it affect you at all the idea that the the book itself, the Gray Smith theory, um, is like not properly sourced? Um, that it's considered heavily biased, like in that, uh, like a lot of people don't actually like give a lot of credence to great Smith's version of things so it's interesting because fincher takes great care throughout that entire movie of always telling you that gray smith is just a cartoonist that he's not a professional investigator he's not a police officer he's not properly trained in investigative techniques he's just a guy who really liked solving puzzles, who got obsessed with the idea of figuring it out and came up with his own theories through, I mean, honestly, like exhaustive hours of mm-hmm. personal research. Um, but that it is just his theory. Right. You know, and like they actually do a really good job, I think, and it's subtle towards the end. Um, the scene in a an airport or whatever, where um, they show his book like right. so you know almost like not not really breaking the fourth wall but kind of breaking the fourth wall because mm-hmm. that's what the movie's based on just that this is just one guy's theory about mm-hmm. like what happened and you know i think that you you see that a lot especially with unsolved crimes and 
specifically like Jack the Ripper, I think being the most famous. But does like, does confirm it immediately afterwards with the one of the original victims that lived, like pointing to the photo of Arthur Lee Allen, like, sure. right after that book shown. So, in some ways, it's like, yeah, I mean, it is still confirming his account. <clears throat> yeah, and again, but it's like. Even if that guy, and it it still casts some doubt because he's willing to like move his finger over and saying like, well, he had a round head like this guy. Right. But, but this is definitely the guy. Yeah, yeah. like eight out of ten or something. 30 like years sure, after. Sure. You know, and I, as traumatic as like that might be, like they show it when they show that scene of him getting shot. Mm-hmm. Um, whatever mouth from One Tree Hill. Right. Yeah. Leading um, versus the actor. Yeah. That like he just glances up at him for a second and right. then is immediately like shot. So. Sure. How much recollection do you actually right. have at that point? Yeah, see, I, I think the sequence, like in the last quarter of the movie, or maybe like, I don't know, one-eighth of the movie or something like that, where Graysmith ends up going down the path of this person who's calling him and giving him information. He ends up going over to somebody's house and finds out when he's there that like the handwriting on this poster he thought was this one guy, but it was actually the guy who was in the house with. And there's this tense sequence where they go down the basement and all of it ends up being bullshit. Like maybe bullshit, but maybe not. I mean, that's uh, the other thing. Maybe, but I think what he's trying to do there is show that I think, I think that's, if anything is the saving grace in the sense of like, he's acknowledging that gray Smith was going down these jumping down, like these rabbit holes, sure. trying to find anything he could about this case. Even if it led him into these dead ends, which Tashi actually warned, warns him about. You can't take every call or every lead as, you know, this is going to be the thing. And he kind of has to learn that lesson. And I think that to some degree that's Fincher, by keeping that in and making sure that that is a 20 minute sequence, that whole yeah. thing probably of kind of not casting down on Gray Smith, but showing that he was capable of those things. Right. And I think that was trying to be fair to some degree about. And also that it was a relatively self-destructive exercise because sure. it does show that his wife left him and yeah, implies right. in the end that they did not reconcile that, you know, you right. know, he has a, you know, the code is like he has a good relationship with his yeah. children. If I, it, yeah. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot going on in this movie than people probably would give it credit for. I mean, I mean, yes, like the idea of obsession uh, is the is the main thing. But I also think probably if I want to think about it more and I haven't is uh, just now I'm thinking about is that the obsession ends up there's there's some kind of epistemological statements going on about like you know when you're that obsessed what can you know and everything turns into signs and symbols right which i think is a phrase i'm stealing from no country for old men maybe um but it's like everything signs and symbols when you're that obsessed with something and he um he certainly starts seeing everything as being related to the zodiac in some way and he gets this random phone call and he goes full force into right. it and you know there's this handwriting and this handwriting and it's like this is now a thing like he he's connected it together and it ends up being bullshit and like so i i think that um it's certainly making some kind of statement about 
and I do think it's questioning a little bit of Gray right. Smith, and also you know? like allowing yourself your emotions to lead how you view evidence. So right. there's plenty right. of times where he's completely dismissive, yes, of the handwriting experts' opinion until the time where the handwriting experts' opinion matches what he feels is the right answer. Um, I don't know. It's um. You know, and there's all the times where they go back to, what is it, like, Washington and Cherry Street or whatever, where, where the cab driver got murdered. Mm-hmm. Where he, like, I think, like, three or four times in the movie is, like, at that intersection, like, for some reason. And I don't know. It's, it's I don't, I, I feel like Fincher films the movie from the perspective that he believes that Arthur Lee Allen is the Zodiac Killer. Not just because it's telling Gray Smith's story, but because he also is convinced of that. Um, I don't know. Just it's it's really well done. It's got some really creepy, ominous, like a almost like oppressive scenes to it. You know the. This the scene in the beginning in the lovers' lane where the first two get shot. The scene at the lake where um the second couple gets like stabbed. <clears throat> I think both of those scenes are really well done. Again, like I think the performances are all like excellent throughout the movie. Um, and I think that for being like a really long epic film, I think it does a really good job of, for the most part keeping your interest and moving the story along in a in a compelling way. And oh, you're right. That was Elias Codius. Never mind. Um. <clears throat> What I was thinking of. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that they have enough characters, like, because it's, like, early on, it's tough. Oh, you were thinking he was Keller? Yeah. What's yeah, that yeah. guy's? Uh, Chris, Chris Maloney. Chris Maloney. I, was, yeah. I thought it was Chris Maloney, like, they, in makeup. Um, it's because they, they add, like, six inches of forehead. To right, the yeah. Right. So, yeah, I think early on, it's, like, it's, like, it's a, it's a, it's a movie where the main character changes. And I think you can kind of break it up into segments. And I think that makes it much more compelling at that point. Yeah. Because at times, Graysmith kind of just disappears for 10 minutes at a time, 15 minutes sometimes. And and they come back to him for a few scenes and he might disappear again. But then Avery's much more prominent in the beginning than he is in the second half. Tashi disappears for at times. Right. And I think there's just this interweaving of all these interesting characters and even subplots at times. Like the idea that um, Armstrong, the Anthony Edwards character, like when he eventually like stop like just like leaves yeah transfers device or whatever right you know um it's like there's all those interesting subplots that are going on and i think that for a three-hour movie it's very well paced because you have so many different main characters and so many different characters to kind of focus on at different times right Right. um also interesting to show like the like the pop culture relevance that the zodiac killer had Mm mm-hmm to like the world, especially like showing, you know, them at the premiere of Dirty Harry. Right. Which is one hundred percent, you know, like a fictionalization of that exact same story, mm-hmm. but where the cops like, you know, win right. in the end. Um and they like it like what 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 you say about Gray Smith is true, but like Gray Smith is is your proxy as the viewer. I mean, right. he's you. Sure. Because he's got the least ability to affect any real change on the outcome of anything in that movie, but you have the most investment in him because it's like, 
he's your eyes and he's your, you know, almost like his perspective is forced to be your perspective. Like they don't really give you the chance to form any other opinion. And I, again, like it's filmed off of his book, so it's a completely understandable that that's how it's done. But it's just, um, I don't know. I, I remember when, when it came out, um, I didn't see it in the theater. I didn't actually watch it until it came out on DVD. Um, because at that point I was kind of over the whole serial killer thing. Um, and I didn't really feel like it served any purpose to see those kind of movies, but I was really impressed with it on DVD. And I've actually watched this movie watching it this week, probably the fourth time I've seen it. And I enjoy it just as much every Mm -hmm. time. And there's really small things in every viewing that I take from it, both in like the way Fincher sets scenes and like the amount of detail that Fincher puts into, um, the way that, the sets are designed and the way the shots are set up and just like the performances themselves. Um, and the guy that plays Arthur Lee Allen does a great job of just being like, Oh, John Carroll Lynch is like great at being that character. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. him. Basically. That's right. Like, yeah. I, I he plays that role that a lot. Yeah. Uh-huh. As like, like in real life, he's probably like <laughs> right. this really nice guy yeah, that yeah, likes right, like yeah. botany or something. But uh-huh. like every time you see him, that guy's going to molest a kid right, or beat yeah. somebody's head in with a mm-hmm, hammer mm-hmm. or just generally be like some kind of creepy heavy. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, just a really, really great movie. Mm-hmm. So a couple things that I just kind of compiled through criticism is one is that the movie ends up fizzling out at the end and just ultimately ends up being too long. Yeah, it's fair. Again, yeah. I, I think there's, I say the, the last third of the movie, I, I think there's probably 20 minutes that if you take out of this movie, it elevates it to being like almost a perfect procedural crime thriller. Hmm. And I think that the fact that they kind of do just kind of spin their wheels, especially with like the Gray Smith obsession point, mm-hmm. like it becomes less interesting from the perspective of telling the narrative of that story and just more like, okay, like let's just get on with it. Like I understand hmm. he's obsessed. I understand it's affecting his life in a negative way. You don't need to keep beating me over the head right. with it. So I, I, I do agree with that okay. somewhat. Um, there's no tension or scares in the movie. No, I don't think that's true. I think there's at least four scenes right off the top of my head that have like a good amount of tension. Uh-huh. So again, like, and it's, it's mostly with the way he uses music, but like the scene in the beginning where the first couple gets killed, mm-hmm. Um, the scene at the lake and right. you know, maybe it's because you know what's going to happen that it kind of removes the tension. Sure. I still think that's a pretty tense scene. I think the interrogation scene with Alan yeah. at his work mm-hmm. is very tense and well done. Yeah. And I think the scene in the basement is, oh, yeah. has mm-hmm. legitimate tension to it. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when, uh, Fuck the I can't remember that actor's name. The guy that plays the projectionist. Oh right, yeah. Um like is just staring at him and just turns out that light mm-hmm. and like he like runs up. I mean it's it's right, it's yeah. pretty tense. Sure. Um and you know, there's also some tension when they film the scene where uh um Downey Jr. like just takes off on his own to go to Riverside. Oh, and right. is like wandering around like these abandoned buildings, like mm-hmm. in the middle of the night. I mean, there's, there's, they, they, they do a good job of putting tension in places where you might not have it otherwise because you know the end result, right. which is always a, like, you know, a pitfall that 
biopics and docudramas can fall into because like with even like a small modicum of research like you can know the outcome of what you're about to see like it's not right. like it's going to be a surprise you know you know they're not going to like bust down a door and catch arthur lee allen like over somebody's like corpse like stabbing it like you know right. i mean that's not going to happen sure you know grace smith's not going to die like you right. like all those things so yeah I think, I, I think anybody wanting scares out of it is misunderstanding the point of the movie. Like, right, I tension, don't know, like, tension I understand, but scares is, right. is, is about a, it's about a serial killer that you're, I, I guess the idea is you're supposed to be how scares. I don't know. I, that doesn't right, it's, it's not a fictionalized account of a serial killer. It's the true account of the procedural right. chase of a serial killer yeah. that just happens to show dramatized versions of a couple of murders. Uh, lastly, that the characters themselves are written too simplistically. I mean, I think there's broad strokes in this movie in some ways. I, I, I don't... I would argue that the only one that I would say that about is Gyllenhaal himself. Mm-hmm. But I think that's on purpose. Because again, like I think he's supposed to be a proxy for you as the viewer. So they don't want to invest too much minute character into him Mm -hmm. because it might draw you out of the overall effect of like what you need him to be, which is like your eyes and ears in that world. Um, But I think, I think Avery's character is really well written. I think Tashi's character is really well written. Um, I even think like the Dermot Maroney captain character and um, agreed uh, Bill, the other detective, I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot of like, small bits of dialogue that are just like second business that serve to build a feeling of like genuine humanity in these characters as opposed to just being like hey i'm a good cop hey i'm a bad cop hey i'm a hard-nosed detective you know like the fact that they're sitting there talking about like how he wants to eat sushi and right you know i mean like small things like that are just really good scenes so Right. But Gyllenhaal, right. like, I agree, but I think it's on purpose. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, I think Tashi's a really good character, and I think Ruffalo plays him really well in this. Ruffalo's an interesting guy because, like, I don't know that I would ever tell you that I like Mark Ruffalo as an actor. Right. But I really like certain performances mm-hmm. from Mark Ruffalo. Uh-huh. I agree. It's weird. You know what it is? It's fucking in the cut, like, ruined Mark Ruffalo for me. And, like, Agreed. that's all I ever I, I mean, think I, when I, I think that's one of, one of the things, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Okay, any final thoughts on this? No. I mean, it's it's not something where I would say that like you can just sit down and enjoy it because I don't know that it's that. I mean, it's 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 a, it's an investment in time. But if you're interested in like this specific series of crimes or just like true crime in general, it's a really good movie and really worth watching if you have the time to spend. Okay. So moving on to number 1 on the list for the top docudrama films is 2005's Capote, directed by Bennett Miller, starring Philip Seymour Hoffman, Catherine Keener, Chris Cooper, Bruce Greenwood, Bob Balaban, Amy Ryan. Has a 90% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and an 81% from audiences. Do you want to tell us the, uh, uh, what this movie is about and, uh, what you like about it so much? So it's the account of Truman Capote, um, going on assignment for the New Yorker or whatever magazine New it was Yorker, yeah. right. um, to investigate the murder of the Clutter family. Um, 
late 50s, I guess this was, mm-hmm. that it happened. Um, Capote at the time was one of the preeminent authors in America and definitely like one of the um, like modern voices of literature. Um, and basically sacrificed several years of his life to write one of, in my opinion, like one of the greatest pieces of nonfiction literature like ever. And definitely like a compelling book. Um, but it's a really good examination of Truman Capote as a personality and as a person. And the lives, you know, that were touched by like these crimes. Um, and in particular, like the lives of the, you know, the two killers, um, Perry and uh, Dick. Um, and also a really interesting look at the creative process, like what it takes to, to write something that's as powerful as In Cold Blood is, as you know, a novel, um, really good secondary performances, especially like Catherine Keener, I think it's fantastic Mm -hmm. as Harper Lee, um, Bob Balaban is, um, can't remember the character's name, but his publisher slash editor. Right. Um, really good look at like in the similar way where and in a similar way to like where Milk succeeds and I think Ed Wood fails like a look at how homosexuality was um, viewed and accepted in a time where it was not an acceptable thing to be a homosexual um, and how different it is from him in a safe environment of like a New York club surrounded by people who accepted and like, or at least like were willing to accept him because of his celebrity mm-hmm. and how he could win over these small town people who were much more conservative, but just because of his genuine interest in like telling the story and, you know, like learning about people and understanding how people work and, um, I think maybe, I mean, Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman is sadly like, you know, since he's passed, but maybe like the best actor of our generation. Like, I don't know of anybody who has as many, like really just powerful, like absolutely convincing performances as Hoffman. And like, I, I mean, I can't think of a single role of Hoffman's that's not, like, absolutely compelling in some way. That is, and a lot of it's, like, that's the, that was, yeah. I mean, a lot of this is going to be us probably talking about him to some extent, but it's, like, definitely someone who got cut short because right. he, I mean, a lot of times his roles were, like, losers, jerks, and he still made them somehow relatable and human. Yeah. And they were so such varied roles inside of that even. And yeah, this is his I think this is certainly his best performance probably. Yeah. I mean, and It's definitely his most transformative performance because he right. he I mean, one of 100% rightfully so. Right, I mean, becomes Truman Capote. Yes. And if you go back and look at like Interviews with Capote right. on like whatever Dick Cavett or whatever sure. he was on, right? Um, or read, you know, like I've I've read a lot about Truman Capote. Yeah. Like I was pretty obsessed with him, like around the time this movie yeah. came out. 
um, he captures the the timing and the wit and right. the cadence, and it's mm-hmm. just and, it's and and it's that ability to transform though. I I mean, ultimately, is also the, the thing that ends up destroying him. I think in the long long run. I mean, is he gets he he became so invested in the characters that he played. Yeah. That it, it was a rigorous process for him, and I and I've read tons about Philip Seymour Hoffman and like what his process was, and it like literally like pained him sometimes, right. like depending on the character that he was playing, and um, I mean obviously I mean like that's certainly what's probably led to the drugs and yeah. you know all those kind of things. So I mean it's interesting because and I've I've used this line on the podcast before and definitely in like real life a number of times because it's one of my I think it's one of the most profound observations like I've ever read um you know Capote says to to Keener at one point or you know to Harper Lee when he's talking about Perry that they grew up in the same house just that Perry took the back door and he took the front and it's like you look at a character like like Scotty in um, Boogie Nights right and Scotty and Capote are very similar base characters in i mean scotty's a repressed homosexual but he's a homosexual um who lacks confidence and you know who makes bad decisions and who isn't very bright whereas capote is this brilliant witty confident man who's very successful and the fact that like you could put those two characters next to each other and show someone who has no idea who Philip Seymour Hoffman is, mm-hmm. and they probably would not be able to tell you that they're looking at the same person. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he can create so many different characters like that. I mean, it's just... Yeah. And there's, like, such a wounded humanity, you know, where you can tell that here's this guy who... Like his number one priority is being a great writer. Like he wants to write this great novel and he knows he has it in him. And even though he has this sense of, I think pity towards Perry. Yes. Like he tells Perry he's his friend. And I think the movie does a really good job of showing that him and Perry are never really friends and he's using him as a means to an end. And, you know, Keener's like Harper Lee says specifically a couple times that that's what he's doing. But he shows it in a way where, like, you believe that he's genuinely traumatized at the end when he witnesses, you know, the execution. Well, not the end, but towards the end. Um, but just, like, a, a really fantastic performance and really well done, like, all around by all the actors in the movie. Um, it was probably my favorite film that year. Um, I was absolutely... yeah blown away by it um and there's small things like like the guy that plays perry smith like i don't know what else he's been in but like he infuses so much like sadness and it's it's tough because like you're looking at people that committed cold-blooded murders and the film does not shy away from like casting that blame like so recently and we we talked about this off air um netflix had a movie Zach Efron, um, the the one about Ted Bundy, I can't remember what it's called, like evil yeah. and whatever. Right. Um, 
where I felt like the failing of that movie was that it gave too much humanity to Ted Bundy without enough culpability to what he did. And I think that Capote does an excellent job of giving Dick and Perry a measure of humanity without removing any culpability for what they did from them as, you know, like as people, like it doesn't like they, whatever you feel about the death penalty, they definitely deserve to be punished for those murders. And they are, um, and the movie does a really good job of like showing that these are people, but that they did do these terrible things and did deserve that punishment mm-hmm. um, without like, I don't know, like grandstanding or preaching about the rightness or wrongness of capital punishment or whatever. Right. Um, but again, like the movie is, it's it's Phil, Philip Seymour Hoffman's vehicle and he does an amazing job. And well, I think what's fascinating is just as much as Capote wants to find out in this movie you know in real life i guess but it's like he's focused on finding out what makes um perry tick is like the movie itself is really trying to get at what makes truman capote tick right and it's not a positive portrayal necessarily of capote in this i mean it's it really questions that idea that they're friends. Yeah. I mean, a lot. I mean, and, and the times I truly believe that Capote just through watching the movie that he, he, he feels to some degree that they are, but he also knows he's constantly betraying this guy. Right. And that guilt is what ends up eating at him. I think in the end, but I mean, he's also a writer who's trying to, you know, I mean, he comes so obsessed with the idea of the book of being this literary giant or, you know, trying to even put, I guess, put himself in the place of giants with this book is that he can't, he doesn't have the ending and he becomes a, you know, a drunken louse, like, you know, as he can't finish this book. And, you know, there's that horrible scene, like eight minute scene in the jail cell when Perry finds out that he did a reading from the book and what the book's title was. And Capote just lies, lies to right. him. Uh, it's just the and is so natural about lying right. to him and has the right answer so quickly, you know, like I know I don't have the title yet. Like, that's not true. They, they, they determine the title. They need something sensational. Like he just yeah. has all the answers right away because probably because he's imagined what it would happen if that, right. you know, and I mean, it's like, but also because he is like a self-obsessed narcissist. Sure. I mean, and there's, yeah. A really small scene, but it's really telling. And again, like, fantastic job by not... the Like, where the criticism of, like, the pen character in Milk is that it's sort of like a glamorization of a guy that was more mm. complex. Like, they definitely don't pull any punches. Sure. And there's the scene where, you know, Harper Lee is... um Just found out that her book got optioned to be made right. into a movie. And he's sitting there smoking a cigarette and like Donnessy was so special about it or whatever oh, the, the line is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, that, that's after, that's the, that's at the premiere, I think, right? Of um, the adaptation. Like they is, want is to go. It, yeah, I, that's, yeah. Okay. He's drink he's drinking and smoking at, um, away from everybody because he's so, that's when he's like uh, self-obsessed about the ending. Right. And like, I can't, I, you know, what, you know, think about me, like what I'm going through. And, um, yeah, and it's at the this friend that sacrificed right, so much of her time right. 
to help him like achieve this right his his opus basically and when like, right. like can't even like and and they know like it's noted like you know when perry sends that letter uh, or that i guess telegram or whatever like right before he's about to be executed he thanks truman and harper right you know i mean she was just as much there even though i don't know if the movie goes in the showing it doesn't but you know, yeah right um that actually brings up the criticism now that i think about it is uh victoria siegel in the new statesman says there's threads of capote's story that remain tantalizingly unexplored uh harper lee is seen being roundly patronized by the male literary establishment yet the excellent keener is given little to do except look sensible and spinsterly uh, there are undeveloped allusions to Capote's childhood, while his relationship with his long-term partner, Jack Dumphy, is poorly explained. Instead, Capote lovingly succumbs to the myth of the tortured artist and the artistic criminal, leaving the story's other voices muffled in white cotton bandages. Um, do you think some of those subplots, like, aren't that really, aren't well fleshed out? I mean, that's, it's, there's not enough time yeah. in that movie to talk about that. Like, it's not about Harper Lee. Even though she's an important character, mm-hmm. it's not about Jack Dunphy, you know, it's yeah. about Truman Capote. Yeah. And in the same way that Capote, like, you know, you just said it, like, is this chameleon, kind of. And he's even like, fuck, what is that story called? He refers to himself in a similar capacity in one of his, like, stories. Um, It's about Capote showing you what Capote wants to show you. And that's mm-hmm. what the movie does. Like, it's about... It's about him. Like, he's the central figure. And even though it's about him writing in cold blood and, like, his life around, like, that time, like, it is just about him. And it is, a like, a true character study of a pretty fascinating individual. Um, shit, I wish I could remember what that, that quote is. I don't know. Um, what yeah, quote? But, what's that? What are you talking about? There's a quote from Capote about being a chameleon or something. Mm-hmm. I, I really can't gotcha. remember what it is. It's... It might be from a story in other stories, other rooms, mm. maybe. I, I can't remember. It's been a decade since I've read Truman right, Capote. Yeah. Like, I, it was one of those things where, like, I read everything in, like, a three-week period. Right. And have, like, probably not read anything since. Yeah. So, um, you didn't talk about obsession. But, mm. yeah, just, again, an amazing performance by... Um, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and just really like there some people actually criticize the uh, the performance um, if you can believe it um, one person uh, it's Patrick Nebero, um says said that it was too academic and um, other criticisms Ted Murphy says that he felt there was some something primal missing in the interpretation that it wasn't actually getting it was wasn't actually getting it like who he was as much as just doing this kind of exterior performance of Capote. See, I don't believe that's true because I really feel like there's elements of damage and loss in the way that he talks about things, and I mean his personality was like flamboyant and present. You know that was his thing is mm-hmm. that he. He he destroyed expectation by beating you to the punch about what your expectation was. Mm-hmm. Like, he didn't let you 
he didn't give you time to form secret opinions about him because he just gave you everything right away. And yeah. I, I mean, there's uh, Toby Jones, like the same year this came out or in the next year, um, is in a movie that's almost exactly the same thing, Infamous. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I haven't. But it's such like a less nuanced performance in my opinion. And I think that I I think that Philip I don't think it's academic. I think he really captures the essence of what Truman Capote was. You know, because there are scenes where Capote's loving towards Dumphy and there's scenes where he's mm-hmm. definitely affectionate towards um the sheriff in Nebraska and his wife and you know, but you see him like using people constantly to get what he needs. And I think that's the crux of the movie is that that's what he did is he, mm. you know, was an, he was an out homosexual in a time when being an out homosexual was definitely not an acceptable thing right. and still became a star and a celebrity in a country that was not ready for that to be, mm-hmm. you know. Do you think to some degree, uh, the, I can't remember the character's name, the Chris Cooper character. Yeah. The sheriff. Yeah. Is, perhaps like the moral center of this movie because he actually accepts Capote even if there's some hesitance him and his family accept Capote and have him over to the house to eat dinner and he meets with him a lot and even ends up giving him all of his notes for the book but also like you know ends up you know criticizing Capote for what I think he sees early on as Capote trying to elongate the process in some ways unnaturally because he wants to get a book out of it. <clears throat> and also the Capote, Could, I mean, his first interaction with Chris Cooper is to crack a joke mm-hmm. about the deaths of these people. Like, mm-hmm. I don't care if they ever catch him. Right. Yeah. Which is right. like, you know, I mean, I, I think that's it. moral center. I don't know. Like I, I, I feel like Harper and, um, and Dunphy are probably more the moral center of Capote's world, but I think he's definitely the the everyman like counterbalance to the I don't know, like self myth mythology whatever self mythos that Capote creates about him, you know, carries with himself and like creates about himself. <coughs> Pardon me. But yeah, I mean like he does the right thing. Mm. You know, he's a man of his word. He told Capote he'd have this access. He gave it to him, but also tells him like, if this goes wrong, yeah, I'm going to hunt you down in New York. I know where you live. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think this is, yeah, this, this is certainly, I think out of these movies is probably the best one. And, um, yeah, I'm glad to rewatch it again. Cause I haven't watched it since we saw it 14 years ago or whatever in the theater. Um, I guess where I want to kind of wrap up with this is like through these movies, like what are, what are the elements that make good docudramas? Do you think? So I think you have to have a good balance of legitimate film narrative with the feeling that you're seeing something portrayed as factually close to the actual events. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think that 
it can't feel too procedural because then it becomes just boring and it can't feel too Hollywood narrative because then it feels unrealistic. So there's a weird, almost like inexplicable balance that has to be set between those two. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can have stylistic elements and you can have like very mundane elements. And I think that's why like movies like Zodiac and Capote, you know, and Milk like work really well because Citizen X is much, much more of an actual like film narrative. Like it, right. it's it's the most it, that and Ed Wood are the most like quote unquote like movie mm-hmm. like movies out of the three of sure. these. Where it really is because like who knows what the actual events of like Soviet Russia in the nineteen eighties sure. were. You know what I mean? So that like they had such artistic license to do whatever they want and create whatever scene they want because no one's going to come back and say okay hey, although actually it's pretty accurate yeah but i mean like but, yeah. you're not right you're not held down to like yeah. you know truman capote saying something that was recorded and reported sure. and that he wrote sure. himself understood like, understood yeah. you have to do that pretty accurately and the same thing yeah. within reason when the world of like zodiac and milk um but they all are able to like capture like a sense of movement in terms of the story. And it like, there's a story that, you know, they, you, you can't go too broad. You can't include everything. Um, but you have to include enough where like the realism is believable, but the story is still like, you still have to be entertained, you know, like you can't be bored or, mm-hmm. <coughs> and some docudramas like really fall short in that. And, this is probably a terrible thing to say, but like, I kind of find Schindler's list to be a boring movie, you know, like I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think that Schindler's list is a great movie, even though like I appreciate what it's about and I appreciate its importance. Like, I don't really find it to be that compelling, honestly. And I don't know. There's, I'm trying to think of other good examples. Well, here, uh, here's one of the things like when you first started talking about this and I started thinking about these type of movies, uh, I'm going to pick on spotlight. That's always the one I pick on. Um, that's the one about the, uh, Boston Globe and oh, right, right. the, uh, Catholic church yeah. from like three years ago or so. They win best. I think one picks best picture that Maybe, year. I don't know. Um, it's one of those things where like I watched that movie and I thought, okay, that happened. Like that's, there's nothing bad about it. Like, I mean, it was well acted. Like there were scenes of tension I thought where, like, you know, it was compelling, like, to watch. But ultimately, I walked away thinking, you know, what am I taking away from this movie that I didn't, that I couldn't read in a Wikipedia article? I mean, honestly, like, and, like, what am I taking away? Why is this movie being made? And why is, what am I supposed to take away from it? And honestly, I don't. I don't know. I still don't know about that. Like it was made, I think, no, it was, I think it's 15 because honestly, if it was about the integrity of the investigative process of newspapers, like if that got released now, maybe it's more apropos um, than it was in 2015. Like, so I do think that like the, the timing of things can be a, can can make the, yeah, the statement much like milk i yeah. think was uh, in some ways doing that i think the timing of things can make it i think that um like zodiac like i think 
like it has a theme to it. Like, you know, it's it's cautionary tale of the dangers of becoming too obsessed with right. something. Like, I think like there, there's a th- there's a message to take away from it. Um, I think there's questions like that are left by Capote, like, you know, of like what's right and what's wrong. And I mean, it's very specific to the artistic process. It's very specific to human relations. But I mean, I do think there are questions that are left there of like, you know, what's the right thing to do? And what's the, you know, how do you treat people? And right. um, I mean, those questions are created by milk, too. Like, yeah. I mean, like, so I find that like a lot of the movies that you picked, I take things away from them. Like Citizen X, like you said, it's it's a movie. Right. You know, and then there's not I don't know. if the, I think it's just a well done movie. <laughs> and that's you know but um yeah so it's like i i don't know if i have an answer like ultimately but i think like when they're released and what statement they're making if anything about today is important i think the if they have a message at all is important or what questions they raise because Maybe. otherwise it's just a reenactment that i could watch on fucking right. unsolved mysteries to me and ultimately like that's my answer is i watch movies because i love watching movies mm-hmm. like i love being transported for an hour and a half two hours to like an alternate reality from whatever it is that i live in and it's gotta like it has to work as a movie you know what i mean like mm-hmm. it can have it can make whatever statements it wants it can show whatever facts it wants but it has to still work as a movie and i think that all five of these you know even ed wood like i think works as a movie like it tells the story mm-hmm. from start to finish. I just right. sure. don't know that I necessarily agree with like the, I don't know the way it's done anymore, but like, I, you know, it's I'm trying to think of another really good example, you know? So to your point about um spotlight, like I feel that way about shattered glass, you know, like I kind sure, of feel yeah, yeah, yeah. like, right. And that's the thing is like, there can be like Hayden Christians is really good in that. Right. Fantastic performance. Fantastic performance. And it's like, but okay like cool i watched a really good performance that's good but it's like what the hell it was just you know what it was it was here's this event that happens the scandal right and then less than a year later here's this movie about that scandal and it makes it so ephemeral that like who cares right like you're just done like okay like i think hayden christensen did a good job right that's it like that's all i need and there's so there's another one too that's kind of like more of a fictionalization. Um, Lavian Rose, uh, with oh I can't remember her name. Um, French actress. It's about a French singer. Um, that's very stylized and very well done, but it's like a story of something that happened like fucking fifty years before with no real context to today. And like, it was a good movie when I watched it, but right. like, obviously I don't remember that much about it, even sure. though I thought, um, man, I wish I could remember that actress's name. She's really good. Um, yeah, but like there, there has to be something compelling, you know, that it's entertaining. It keeps your interests. Right. It triggers certain like questions inside yourself and still tells like that entire story. Right. So, and I think all five of these movies do that well enough. Okay. All right. So um, that is our list for the week. We are over the course of the next two weeks, we'll be doing the uh, best B horror movies of 1985, uh, which is a pretty good list actually, um, which is com- is a lot coming from me. And 
Uh, we will also be doing a watch along with a big sleep and also um, doing a drinking game uh, with that. So those that's coming up over the next couple of weeks. I know the first week of July, we're going to be doing the top five summer movies um, and we'll play it from there. Um, we have some ideas for the rest of July, um, not including the 1986 list. But um, thank you for listening tonight. And um, if you wanted to follow us on Facebook or like us on our page on Facebook, um, that would be helpful. Sharing also is always very helpful to us. Um, if you had any list ideas of your own, you can always email us at twoguys5movies at gmail.com or contact us on Facebook or any of the uh, uh, podcatcher apps that you might use to listen to the show. So thank you again and have a good weekend. Yep, have a good night.